I'm so thankful to conclude this study through Ruth. I'm sure it's been a unique exercise for all of us. We're usually not doing historical books in a sermon format like this. Um, There are lots of reasons why that is the case. I've thought to myself many times, why are we studying this book? And I don't mean that I've asked that uh, cynically, saying, ugh, why are we studying this lame book? It's so pointless. <laughs> Let's just talk about Jesus already. No, I'm, I'm saying I asked that question, why are we studying this book for every book that we study together? And I think it's about identifying a goal and the best way to appreciate the study that we're, that we're doing together. So um, how would you answer... How would you answer that question? Why are we studying this book? I forgot to ask at the beginning. Is it possible to open up, like I did last time, their responses in the chat so that I can see what they say? Is it possible to do that? I'm sorry to ask this right now. Why are we studying this book? Okay, Tommy, text me your answer. Just kidding. Uh, Well, I mean, you could do that if you want. (laughs) Uh, but I think, well, just, uh, I guess for the show to go on, let's, uh, I have other questions, whatever. So why are we studying this book? Well, usually one of the best ways of answering that question is by answering another question first. How does this book connect to the rest of the Bible? That kind of, like, if you answer that question, that basically answers this question automatically. So last week, One of my favorite things that Tommy said is something that might surprise you, might surprise him, because he probably doesn't even remember saying it or might feel like some innocuous thing that he said. (laughs) But Tommy said either in his opening prayer or his introduction, we don't just have a bunch of random stories in the Bible. That's what he said. We don't have just a bunch of random stories. I wrote it down in my notebook because I really like that he said that. And that's exactly right. Tommy also said that these stories are all connected. I don't remember the exact quote on that one. But that's basically what he said. That was in the introduction of what he was saying last week. And maybe that's what we felt sometimes when we're studying books like Joshua and Judges, like we've done in the the Sunday gathering with the rest of the congregation. What are all these stories about? What's the deal with these stories about conquering Canaan? Why do I care about how many acres of land the tribe of Asher got in the promised land. What's the deal with the book of Judges and all these rated R stories? Um, So let me just say, I understand if sometimes it feels like or seems like these stories are disconnected um, and kind of hard to follow and kind of hard to connect to the other stuff that we've learned. So let's think. How have we seen the story of Ruth connected to other stories in the Bible, especially after reading this chapter just now, are there any things that stand out to you as, oh, that's, that's related to this other stuff in the Bible that I, that I know about, that we've learned about. Maybe you've heard some of the people preaching through this series make these connections, but what are some of those things that we see from this book are connected to the other parts of the Bible? Because that will help us understand, how do I appreciate this book? Because one of the ways you appreciate the book is seeing how it connects to the rest of the Bible. Okay, I don't know if we got the chat thing yet. So let me just let me just assume that we don't and continue here. So, first of all, we know when, around what time period this happened. This happened during, it says in the very first verse, in the days the judges ruled. 
So the author of this book is saying during that time of the judges. Now that's pretty crazy considering that that was a time of rampant idolatry and apostasy. People disconnecting themselves from the God of Israel. I'm done with him. And this story takes place in one of the worst periods of time. One of the most infinite, infamous, notorious periods of time in Israel's history. And But here you have a story filled with people who have very strong faith in God and trust Him to provide. It's, you know, in a, in a certain sense, even in the worst generations, these people are saying, like what Joshua said, me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. We will not abandon the God of Israel. We will trust Him. Now, here's the other thing. All of this is taking place in Bethlehem. Now, you probably already know, you know, spoiler alert, that's the hometown of David. And you probably also already know, spoiler alert, <laughs> that's the birthplace of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, here's another thing that might slip under the radar. Um, so, although the author and the dating of this book are most are basically unknown, uh, most scholars believe this book, Ruth, was written while David was reigning as king or after he had already reigned as king. Like during that monarchy, that, that monarchy phase of Israel. So the, the people reading this, the first people reading this are probably, they're almost definitely aware of who King David is like in their, in their time period. So this is like a prequel of sorts of King David's story. Uh, his his name is his name is mentioned twice in this book. It's the last. It's the conclusion of this book. Jesse, Father David, the end. Well, what's the other thing about Bethlehem that's pretty crazy? Well, Rachel, the wife. This is important. I promise you, Rachel, the wife, one of the wives of Jacob, whose name was renamed Israel, and she's mentioned in this book too. By the way, in this chapter, chapter four. She, when she died, was buried in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem kind of has like this significant, like if they, had, if they had a national park or a national monument there for Rachel, it would be in Bethlehem at honoring Rachel kind of like the, the original first lady of Israel. She's like the Martha Washington of Israel. Hopefully people know who Martha Washington is. Whatever. George Washington's wife. <laughs> um, also, as we know, there's prophecy of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem in Micah 5. We usually read that around Christmas time. And in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, you have this genealogy. This guy was the father of this guy and the father of this guy. And it keeps going. And you have Ruth and Boaz mentioned there. You have King David mentioned there. And then eventually you have Jesus, the Messiah. So this book is not just some random, you know, Hebrew, you know, cheesy romance story you buy it at Redbox or something this this has a messianic purpose this has a royal purpose it's like a royal origin story of david to emphasize the royalty this is happening in judah among the the people of judah judah is the tribe of kings so the redemptive significance of judah also traces all the way back to genesis when jacob was going to die um he said he blesses and curses some of his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says this in Genesis 49, verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's son shall bow down before you. Bow down before you. So royalty. The scepter, that's like the king ruling. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of peoples. So right there, Jacob is pronouncing this blessing. It's almost like a, it's, it's a, basically a prophecy of Judah. This is what your lineage will be. You will be the tribe of kings. So that's on the Judah, Bethlehem side. Now let's go to Moab. Why do they keep saying Ruth the Moabite? Is it like, do we just say, you know, um, Jeffrey, the guy, the American Argentinian guy? Like, who cares? <laughs> um, why is it significant to keep saying Ruth the Moabite? Well, if you know about Moab's history, it's a, it's, it's a tainted history. It has a tainted origin and it has a rivalrous. They're, they've been rivals with, with Israel for, for, for centuries at this point. Their origins. I'm kind of hesitant to even read this during youth group. But, you know, it's in the Bible. So I guess here we go. Genesis 19. Where did Moab come from? Moab came from um, Lot when they escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot escaped. His wife turned around, turned into a pillar of salt. But his two daughters were still there. So they lived in a cave because their city just got destroyed. And the two daughters said, let's, let's, let's get with our dad, each of us one night, so that we can have a child and that our, our lineage can continue. Because there are no men around, so we need to use our dad to have a kid. And one of those kids was named Moab. That's where Moab came from, an incestuous relationship. So already, this is a, this is a, it's a depraved origin. It's a messed up origin. Later on, Israel, when they're, when they're in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers and in the book of Judges, um, there are multiple moments where Moab, the only thing they want to do is destroy Israel. They're trying to curse Israel. In Numbers, the king is trying to curse Israel, so he gets Balaam to do that. That's this really complicated incident. And then in the book of Judges, um, Moab is a place that was that enslaved Israel, and God raised up the, the left-handed guy, Ehud, to go stab King Eglon and leave the sword inside of him. That was Moab that God was destroying, well, that God was overthrowing in the book of Judges. So that's where Ruth is from. So Ruth the Moabite is a super... It, that name carries a lot of, you know, none of it's her fault, but I'm just saying that that stuff was really, people didn't forget history in those days. People may, brought that stuff up. So to recap, we know some critical things about how this story connects to the rest of the big story of the Bible. So to give a soft pop culture comparison, it's like if you watch Rogue One, a Star Wars story that has a specific place in the Star Wars timeline. Almost all the characters in that movie are isolated to that movie. And still the characters are doing things that are ultimately consequential and important to the rest of the storyline. But it feels like it's kind of remote. Like it's kind of just in like its own place. And that's it just has that specific place in the Star Wars timeline. So Ruth, most of the people here are only just mentioned here. But clearly that story, this story has a lot of implications to the full story of Israel. So treating the book of Ruth as just some cute Hebrew Hallmark movie 
would be like watching Rogue One and saying, who's that guy with the black suit and does a... Who does the breathing with the red lightsaber at the end? Who's that guy? Is he important? <laughs> that's Darth Vader. And yes, he is important. Um, or it would be like watching The Hobbit and just being like, oh, that's a nice ring that Bilbo has there. Uh, you know, it has, a, it has a pretty cool power. You can turn invisible. That, uh, you know, I wonder... That's a pretty cool little trinket he got there. And who's that Gollum guy? Does... Well, whatever. I guess we'll never hear from him again. <laughs> or it'd be like watching Avengers Endgame and being like, who's the purple guy? You know? He, spoiler alert, his head gets chopped off right at the beginning. So I guess he doesn't matter. <laughs> no, um, d- don't do that with the Bible. The Bible, the Bible has clear connections that are made uh, so that we can know how to appreciate them. So I'm sorry if you have no idea what I'm talking about with any of those pop culture references. I tried, but whatever. So let me repeat the point I'm trying to make. I was only using those references as examples to understand this. We must understand each book of the Bible, how it relates to the rest of the Bible timeline or the rest of the canon to appreciate each individual book more. So I'll repeat what Tommy said. We don't just have a bunch of random stories. We have a unified story that leads to Jesus and we'll get to him. So let's see what the book of Ruth says. Okay. So let me first reintroduce something vital in this chapter. This, is, this chapter is about the emergence of the true kinsman redeemer. That's an interesting word. We talked about it with Tommy last time. Um, so let's review what that is. What is a kinsman redeemer? What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, um, I have this Bible dictionary here and it says this. The law allowed for a goel or a kinsman redeemer to redeem the land of a family member that became poor and was forced to sell it. That's from Leviticus. And this was done to keep the land in the family. The Goel also had the right to redeem individuals. God putting this kinsman redeemer clause in the law reveals that he cares about the land as well as the legacy. He cares about the place, the possessions, as well as the people. So keep that in mind. The redeemer redeems not only the place, but the persons and their heritage. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of what in the world is going on here. Why are they at a gate? What, what's this sandal gimmick that they're doing? Um, but I do want to note a few things about these details because they're put there for a reason. The original readers would have some intuitive understanding as to why these details are mentioned. But still, some of, some of these things even needed a little bit of clarification for the original audience. In verse 7, look, the author says, Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. So, the reason, there are two reasons the author says that. One, it matters to the story. And two, he knows that the audience probably won't know exactly what's going on. So don't feel bad if you're kind of looking at this and you feel like a foreigner. Because um, we are. I mean, we are. We're not, we're not Israelites in that ancient world. Um, but I guess you could say that kind of puts you in Ruth's position too. You're, you're an outsider. You don't know exactly how all this stuff works. You are just seeking the kingdom of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, and, and you're seeking his blessing and you want to trust in him. So in that sense, we're in a position like Ruth. So don't feel bad if you feel kind of, you know, out of your depth a little bit. Okay. 
So let's go to let's go to the gate. That's where this starts. The gate was a place um, for transactions. It was uh, typically scholars say the gate is where you have a lot of commerce, a lot of trading, business, all that stuff. It was the ent- It was like the entry to the market of that particular village, because you catch people as they're coming into town. It's like they can't miss you. That way you get the most potential customers, most potential traffic, so on and so forth. The gate was also a place for legal matters. You see that here, that there's kind of a legal, there's a legal uh, authority in this place. It's not like every village had some beautiful courtroom with the Greco-Roman architecture of, of, you know, like a Washington, D.C. So the gate was... The gate of a town was an organic place for a bunch of witnesses to congregate and to confirm or just be just be witnesses to transactions and even contracts and things like that. So this is the author telling us that Boaz is seeking to sort this out the right way. He says in chapter three, like like what Tommy preached, he says, there is another one who has the right to marry you, Ruth. So we need to sort that out first. Um, he didn't just go quickly marry Ruth in the night. You know, they didn't just run away right off into the sunset after they eloped. Okay, no, he said, I would love to marry you. Now, he, I'm paraphrasing. I would love to marry you, but there's someone else that has the right to redeem the land and take your hand in marriage. But don't worry. You stay put. I'll take care of it first thing tomorrow morning. Now, as lovely and as romantic this story is, um... And I mean, honestly, that is that is one of the reasons I love it. Boaz and Ruth are clearly not just in this whole thing for themselves. They are not just looking to their own interests. Even their marriage is not just for them. Now, we might think marriage is just about those two people getting married. At least that's what the world wants to tell us. It's about those people getting married at that time. And, you know, if they change their minds... Uh, I guess that kind of changes the way the marriage works. That's what the world says. So let's see this. Marriage is about a lot more than only those two people. That is still the case. Look at Ruth in this story. She's thinking of Naomi. She's seeking refuge and blessing of the God of Israel. Um, she's seeking to have to have children. She's She's thinking of how her this this whole thing is going to help all those around her and what she can do by by being a mother and being a wife whether she becomes a mother or wife or not those are her commitments those were her commitments even before boaz entered the picture she's thinking of naomi she's um seeking to obey and trust in the god of israel that has always been her commitment since chapter one and look at boaz boaz is not just thinking of himself either He's thinking of Naomi's restoration. He's thinking of Elimelech's lineage. He's seeking to bless Ruth by being a provider, by being a husband and a father. And being a husband and a father like Yahweh, being a, being a provider like Yahweh is for, for us, our heavenly father. He's also a man of purity. He, he doesn't want to forsake the law of God. He's going to do this according to God's law. He's an upright man. He wants to be obedient to God's law. Those are his commitments. And again, I will say, he was committed to those things 
mostly those things, even before, even before this marriage thing was on the table with Ruth. That's how he was living. And that's why Boaz has the resolve right here, the night before, saying, I'm going to the gate so that all may see it. And it would be officially declared to everyone, I have redeemed Ruth and Naomi. I have redeemed the land and the dead lineage of, dead lineage of Elimelech. Then and only then, I will be able to say with a clear conscience, it is finished, paid in full. So let's go to the gate. At the gate, we see a dialogue between two kinds of people. We have this anonymous guy who doesn't even get named in the account. I've heard other preachers call him Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> and we have Boaz. Let's review how they talk through the situation. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go verse by verse here and give little explanations in between. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there. We already discussed why they're at the gate. And behold, the Redeemer of whom, Bo- of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. That When he says friend, that's kind of where the preachers say, that's where he says Mr. So-and-so. Oh, come over here, guy. Hey, bro, come over here. Like He's just saying, yeah. hey, chap, dude. <laughs> and he turns aside and sits down. And he took 10 men of elders of the city and said, sit down here. Okay, we establish why they're at the gate. Also, notice how Boaz takes 10 men of the elders of the city. You see that? So why is he doing that? Boaz is making sure this goes on record. He's doing it all the right way. He's making sure all the right, all, all of it is clear, all of it is pure, all of it is for God. So they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it. Isn't that interesting that he's recommending to this guy to buy it? Let's continue. Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, there's no one besides you to redeem it. Do you see how Boaz understands how valuable this whole proposition is? It's like he's giving this guy an infomercial. He's saying, look at how great of a deal this is for you. Check this out, bro. You have a great chance here to redeem this stuff. You want to go for it? If not, let me know, because I might go for it. He considers this a privilege and an honor to redeem. To redeem the lineage of Elimelech, to restore Naomi, um, the land. All of it he views as a great privilege, a great honor. It's a glorious thing to do. That's the kind of man that he is. And so the other guy says, okay, I will redeem it. And at first it sounds like he's saying, hmm, sure, why not? Yeah, sounds pretty good. Yeah, good deal. Let me check it out. But let's see how Boaz follows up. Then we'll see, then we'll see the difference between these two men. We'll, we'll see why Boaz has his name in this book and the other guy doesn't get named in this book. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite. Look at how he describes Ruth. The Moabite, the widow of the dead. Ugh. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz is saying, my friend, are you sure about that? Because look at what else comes with this deal. A widow of the dead. And the name of the dead in Elimelech's inheritance. Are you sure you want this? Verse 6. Then the Redeemer says, 
I cannot redeem it for myself. And this is key. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. So the guy would, the guy takes away his sandal. So he backed out. That's what removing the sandal symbolizes. It's like you physically withdraw your sandal to show I'm withdrawing. So now we see the difference between Boaz and this guy. This guy says, this is, these are his own words. I don't want to impair my own inheritance. I like having my stuff. I like living for myself. I don't want to mess it up with the baggage of redeeming. There's too much cost. Too much death. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't look at us and say that? And say, ah, those people are a lost cause. Don't bother with them, Father. I'm not going to waste my time and resources on them. Those people are as good as dead. Let them die. Just forget about them. We would have no hope if that were Jesus' attitude toward us. We are all as good as dead outside of Christ. And there is no one willing or even able amongst us, humans, mere humans, to redeem us from this sin and death to which we are all enslaved outside of Christ. That's why Paul asks this question in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Should we cut this guy some slack though? This, you know, this Mr. So-and-so guy. How is he supposed to know that the line of King David and King Jesus was, was you know, up for grabs here? <laughs> um, I'll let you decide for yourself if we should cut him some slack. But don't think for that for too long because I want to focus more on the other man in the situation. Let's focus on Boaz's attitude. Does he see the value in what he's doing? Look at what he says after he realizes, okay, now it's my right to redeem. Look at what he says in verse 9. You are witnesses this day. Usually people don't say that when they're ashamed or salty about something. Usually they don't you know, want to announce it to a bunch of people. <laughs> uh, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. <laughs> Look at how excited he is to announce all this stuff. He's saying this and this and this. This is the stuff I have redeemed. And he says, since you guys are all witnesses of this, let everyone in Bethlehem know I've redeemed Elimelech's legacy. I've redeemed Naomi. I've redeemed Ruth. I will perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance. Why is Boaz so excited? Why did he do all this? Remember that I've said before in other sermons, when people in the Bible use phrases like, so that, or in order to, that is the person revealing why they did something or why someone is doing something. It reveals purpose, intention, motive, and so on. So look at how Boaz answers that question. Why are you doing this, Boaz? And then here's his answer. Look at what he says in verse 10. So that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. He also says the same thing in the initial offer to the, to the, to the, to the guy, to the first kinsman redeemer guy. Verse 5. He says, do this in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now think about it. 
This book starts with Naomi saying, I've experienced bitter providence from God. So call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Because I'm as good as dead. My two dead sons, my dead husband, my daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, will all be forgotten in Elimelech's dead lineage. We'll live the rest of our short lives in Bethlehem. We'll die and we'll just fade into oblivion. Naomi and Ruth could have easily been overlooked as a lost cause, as good as dead, as I said. But Boaz, in the eyes of Boaz, his eyes sparkle at the sight of this. He's thinking to himself, Lord, could it be that I could redeem this dead land and this dead people, this dead lineage? I will give Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the dead, a new name in the royal tribe of Judah. I will give Ruth a new name among the living in Israel's book of life. I will pay whatever it costs. I will do whatever it takes to be the redeemer. And that's why Paul answers that question that I was saying earlier. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What's Paul's answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, or you could say our kinsman redeemer. So then after Boaz completes the negotiations to acquire the right to redeem, that's important. You have to have the right to redeem. He expresses his desire and his celebration to redeem. It's not just about having the right because the other guy had the right, but had zero desire to get to to put himself on the line for this thing. No desire. So Boaz had to get the right because he most certainly had the desire to do this. And that's why he says, now you are all witnesses. I've done it. It is finished. Paid in full. I've become the kinsman redeemer. Now, check out this endorsement from the elders. These are pretty strong words of affirmation and privilege for Boaz. Check this out. This is, for Ruth, this is for Boaz, Ruth, and their offspring. That's, you know, presumably to come. Verse 11. All the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Like I said, Rachel and Leah were the original wives of Israel. The wives of Jacob, the man who was renamed Israel. So these elders are saying, May Ruth, the foreign widow... The widow of the dead become like the first ladies of Israel. May God build up Israel through Boaz's children with Ruth. She's no longer a widow of the dead. She'll be a wife and a mother of life, of redemption, of royalty. (laughs) If that's not redemption, I don't know what is. And then in verse 11, they say, May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. There's more. There's even more affirmation and blessing from this for, for that they're saying to Boaz here. May you, Boaz, act worthily. Up until this point, do you think Boaz acted worthily? I hope our answer is a categoric yes. There should be no question in our minds. This Redeemer is worthy and upright. He deserves all the fame All the compliments coming to him for all of this. If he doesn't deserve some praise for this, again, I don't know who does. Also, 
Notice how they mentioned Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's the place where they buried Rachel. Remember I said it at the very beginning. So it has, it has significance to Israel's roots. And they, the people there are recognizing that too. May she be like Rachel and Leah. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. So look at how important history and lineage and, and legacy was to these people. That's why they thought it was such a glorious thing what Boaz was doing. It wasn't, they weren't saying, wow, what a cute couple. I mean, that's probably true too. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I don't care about that stuff. But look at how grand, like more, uh, the, like how much broader the scope is of how glorious they think this is. Marriage and family were not just about having someone to, to binge watch Netflix with you. <laughs> there was and is so much more glory, so much more beauty and power in marriage like this. Verse 12, they say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the best part of the whole thing right here, folks. Now we're starting to see why this book is included in the Bible. The offspring that they mention there in verse 12. This, what, this won't just be any offspring. Even the elders are saying that. This will be a royal offspring. The line of Judah will continue all the way down to the lion of Judah. So verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and she went into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. You see how quickly we move to her having a son? It's, it's emphasizing how important that offspring is. So quick side note. From this verse, we can, we can conclude every human life is a gift from God. Every conception is a gift from God. It's, it's like this book has already said. Root, or, sorry, it's not like this book. It's not like this book has said Ruth was barren. She couldn't have children. You know, she was like Sarah. So God had to do a miracle because she was super old and couldn't have kids. No, the text does not indicate that Ruth or Boaz were incapable of having this child. They were not infertile as a couple. Uh, if that were the case, I think we have ample precedent for assuming that the author would have included that if that were the case. Because the Bible has plenty of stories before and after this that give us that detail when it is the case. So... What is that saying? It's saying that even the regular, ordinary, I'm putting in quotation marks, or natural conceptions are gifts from God. God isn't just sometimes doing cool stuff in the stories of the Bible. And, and it's like, no, okay, now those times are past. No, that's not the case. All of us are here today because God gave us to our parents. That's what that phrase tells us. Okay, so that's the end of that side note. Back to the main track. This book is pointing to something extraordinary about this otherwise ordinary, in quotation marks, conception. You already see it foreshadowed a bit in the elders. Remember what they said. May your house be like the house of Perez, uh, the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Judah's the line of kings, remember, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you. Remember, we don't just have random stories. There is great significance to these names and these stories that they're mentioning. They're not just throwing random people's names out. There's significance to these names. And we understand them when we harmonize the Bible. When you hear Judah, think of royalty. Because Jacob, also known as Israel, pronounced that blessing. 
Your brother shall praise you. Um, your sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Um, all peoples will obey him. That's what's said of the tribe of Judah. And that's what this offspring will be in the tribe of Judah. So this ordinary baby of this Moabite woman that came out of nowhere is actually quite extraordinary. And the women around Naomi also recognize this too. Everyone's on the hype train of this baby. And for a good reason. Look at verse 14. The women say to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Who is worth more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You see, the women say it too. Even in this story, uh, where you feel like this is just happening in some farm village. Like, you know, it's a cute little Hallmark movie. No, no, no. Everyone in this story is emphasizing how historically significant this baby is going to be right here at the end. Um, and they're emphasizing what God is going to provide through this offspring. Could this offspring be, you know, that offspring that's mentioned in Genesis 3? The offspring that will bruise the head of the serpent that God promised. Now, another thing about what these women said. The Hebrew language scholars point out there's something really interesting here going on in verses 14 and 15 that we can't really see in English that well. So the Hebrew scholars say all of these pronouns, when they say his name be renowned, he shall be to you the restorer of life. You might, like me, first think, oh, they're talking about Boaz. Boaz's name be renowned in Israel. Boaz's name be the restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. Actually, the Hebrew scholars say those pronouns are talking about the baby on Naomi's lap, <laughs> not Boaz. They're calling the offspring of the kinsman redeemer the, the real or the greater kinsman redeemer in this case. Now, that's not like they're just roasting Boaz. Um, like, oh, you know, your husband, forget him. You know, it's, a, it's not, they're not doing that. Um, or Ruth's husband. That it's, um, they're emphasizing what will be provided through the offspring. It's a recognition and praise of what Yahweh will do with this offspring. It's not a, it's not a dismissal of Boaz. It's a recognition of the greater thing here. So then, verse 16, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, uh, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's right. You know, if it wasn't spoiled already. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, and therefore the great-great-whatever-grandmother of King Jesus, the Messiah. And this story tells us the kind of redeemer we have in Jesus, and the type of king this son of David, Jesus, is. So like Boaz, and even greater, Jesus' redemption reverses the curse of death. Like Boaz, and even greater, Jesus' kingship is one of total refuge, total provision, total blessing, total intimacy, and eternal life for those who are underneath the shadow of his wings. Not only does he redeem, not he being Jesus, not only does Jesus redeem us from death, 
He also comes and cleanses us from our damned heritage and gives us a new name and brings us into his house. That's what Boaz did here in this small way. And that's what Jesus does on the eternal scale of time. He didn't, so Boaz didn't just say to Ruth, okay, fine, I'll pay for your, you know, little sobby charity commercial, but don't bother anymore. Just go live, just go live in my second house. I'll send food and money. You'll have clothes, but we're not close. We're not friends or anything. We're not close. No, no, no. Boaz takes these widows of death and brings them into his very household to make them mothers of life, mothers of royalty. And in Ruth's case, he brings her into his very bed. <laughs> Look at the loving commitment on the part of Boaz. Look at how intimate this redemption is, the extent to which Boaz goes to redeem. Boaz's f- fulfillment of these legal obligations is motivated because of his love for Ruth and his love for God. And Jesus' obedience to the Father, even greater, is not just so that he can say, okay, people, I paid for your debt of sin. Now stop bothering me. Leave me alone in heaven. No. <laughs> he brings us into his very home, his very family, because he loves his Father and he loves us. And to be even more precise... He brings his home down to earth with us. He makes his home with us on earth. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did it because he already loved. John 14, verses 18 through 23. I will not, this is Jesus talking. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest my love to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Boom. (laughs) Now, thinking back on all the characters and events in this story... Let's consider ourselves a little bit, our, our faith in God, how this relates to us. Outside of Christ, we're like Ruth and Naomi and Moab, as good as dead. Widows of death, no lineage, no hope, a lost cause. And the only way we will be redeemed is if there is one who has the right to redeem us and the resources and the desire to redeem us. That is Jesus. Hebrews 2.9 says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Ruth and Naomi realized how hopeless they were. And so they lived by faith, trusting entirely in Yahweh, the God of Israel's provision, and the Redeemer that he would provide. Even when Boaz was not in the picture, that's what they lived by. That's the faith they had. The God of Israel will provide. And that is how we ought to live as well. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, the elders, all the women look forward to this offspring that God would send. This Messiah for redemption. And we look at the same Messiah knowing his name, Jesus, for our redemption as well. 
Look at what look at what Jesus says in Revelation one. Um, so John, the apostle John, begins to have this vision. Jesus is revealing, is appearing to John, and he's describing what he's looking at. So this is John saying. He says, "When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." Interesting, as though dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died." And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. <laughs> so Boaz saw what glory there was in redeeming the name of the dead. Jesus has truly, eternally done this for all of those who trusted him. We are all doomed for death outside of Christ. But God has provided a savior for us that has purchased death and Hades he has the keys to those things because he died and he's tasted death for all of us on our behalf. And he puts his right hand on you and he says, don't be afraid. I'm alive forevermore. And so you will live. He died once and is alive forevermore. Trust and obey him. And we close with this saying what the women said. Blessed be the Lord Yahweh who has not left us this day without a redeemer, Jesus. Amen.